Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. The COVID-19 pandemic stopped much civil litigation in its tracks. Litigation resumed primarily using remote technology and it wasn't bad. The pandemic affirmed in a broad and palpable way that technological innovations and adaptations in civil litigation are here to stay. Tech actually has influenced civil litigation for some time, starting with the photocopier and transitioning to the digital era. Emails, social media posts, GPS tracking, and all kinds of technology are regularly used in civil litigation today. Here too, though perhaps not quite as pervasively yet, is artificial intelligence. AI is helping lawyers search through massive amounts of digital information to find material most helpful to their cases, and whispers of robo-lawyers and robo-judges and even robo-laws can be heard in the courthouse halls. What's the current state of AI and civil litigation? What's on the horizon and what does all that mean for the future? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, David Engstrom, LSVF professor in law at Stanford Law School and co-director of the Stanford Center on the Legal Profession. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Let's start with some current well-accepted uses of technology in civil litigation. Tell me about those. Sure. So I think it's important to start by noting that there's a baseline of technology use within the civil, civil litigation system. You know, lawyers and the legal system more generally have been using technology of various sorts for, for decades. So you can think of like law offices. They've been digitizing the same way that businesses have been uh, in recent decades. So lots of back office stuff to submit and pay bills, keep track of payroll, like that sort of thing. E-discovery, another great example. There's been a whole lot of effort in thinking by rulemakers, judges, litigants, uh, about how to corral the deluge of, of digital materials, email, digital files, formulas, algorithms, et cetera, that, in the world, that are out in the world and that are now central to, to litigation. And to manage that flow, we've had new rules on cost shifting. So for instance, when does one side have to pay the other side's costs to extract digital content from backup tapes? And we've got growing use and growing disputes about use of keyword searches to sift through it all. There's e-filing, right? The advent of PACER and ECF, which has eliminated costly trips to the courthouse. There's far less of that at the state level, but it's, it's starting to gain momentum. You could point to online databases to perform legal search and legal research. So think Westlaw and Lexis. You know, back in the day, you needed a law library or your own copies of the federal and state reporters or treatises or restatements or something to engage in, in civil litigation. Um, starting before the pandemic, but for obvious reasons, picking up quite a bit of steam during the pandemic, we've seen a migration of good chunks of civil litigation online. Um, so much of, low, of litigation you can think of as like a slow burn of status conferences and um, motions practice and, and depositions. And those sorts of proceedings in particular have moved online post-pandemic, and it looks like they're going to they're gonna stick, although it's, it's always a little hard to tell which parts will, will stick and which won't. Um, last, we've seen growing courtroom use of digital demonstratives, so reenactments of accidents and, and that sort of thing. So as I've written in a couple of places now, you can draw a common line through many of these. And I think there's a really elementary but an important point to make, um, which is that digitization of the sort we're seeing in all these different ways means datification. And that has two really key dimensions that we're thinking about going forward. Um, new digital technologies, they're going to increase both the amount of data 
in the system and also its centrality to the functioning of the system and to the healthy functioning of the system, both now and, and in the future. So I don't know, that's a, that's a thumbnail of where we're at. That kind of lays a foundation maybe as we move into some higher order AI fueled uses. Yeah, that's great. So what about AI? Sure. So um, several of the above types of legal tech or technology are currently being supercharged by AI. And I guess by AI, I mean really machine learning of, of various sorts. So the most obvious, the place where AI is most in use within civil litigation right now is discovery. So it's, it's something called technology assisted review. That's a label that it passes under TAR for short. Uh, and, and in a nutshell, what you do is lawyers label a subset of documents that might have to be produced to the other side for relevance and or privilege. They have to put flags on them, essentially. And that might be a random draw of a thousand documents out of a million. And we call that a seed set. And that seed set can be fed into a machine learning system. And it's not quite as easy. It's not quite as turnkey as you think. There's a fair bit of manipulation and and. and um, you know, and tuning that has to happen. But the point is you can, you can train a machine learning system to flag the rest, to label the rest effectively for relevance or privilege. So that's, that's the, the most common use right now, but we're also seeing more and more use of AI to fuel what you might call legal analytics tools. So some of these are just better forms of legal search or legal research. You can maybe put in the early pleadings in a case or you know, even just the complaint and get back a smart and targeted cache of materials. That might be relevant statutes or relevant regulations or relevant case law. Um, but, but the point is it, it's, it, you can kind of think of it as Lexis and Westlaw on, on steroids. Uh, other tools, though, have more of a predictive component. So how has the judge that you're in front of ruled in the past and which among possible arguments did she wait or parrot in her orders? And so you can think of that as kind of legal research. There's also a prediction component to that as well. And I guess that leads me to the last place. And this is really the frontier use of AI within civil litigation, but it's case outcome prediction tools. And these are really the holy grail if you really think about it. Uh, case outcome prediction is kind of the essence of what lawyers do. You know, Justice Holmes, I think, once upon a time said law is a little more than how a court is going to act or, or, or react or rule. And so you can think of, of these outcome prediction tools as being right in the heartland of, of what lawyers do. Like, how likely am I to win this case? Uh, you know, how much is it going to cost me to litigate it, uh, et cetera? So these outcome prediction tools still very much in their infancy. They have really only proved effective in fairly narrow self-contained technocratic areas of law. So things like tax law or labor law, something like that. They also heavily involve lawyers in their construction. So this is hardly like robo lawyers yet, but they're getting, they're getting better. And so if I could just leave off with a really concrete example that I think synthesizes all of this and shows you what the frontier might look like. Um, there's a tool that my co-author also, my wife, Nora Freeman, Eng Freeman Engstrom, and I have called the Walmart Suite. And this is a tool that's being developed by Walmart. Other large corporations are getting involved too, tech companies and law firms. And it's the trio of the three types of actors who are creating some pretty potent tools. And there's some interesting conference presentations going around the beginning of some podcasts and blogs that show that Walmart has developed some really potent tools uh, that can, if you just feed in a complaint, can produce an answer and initial discovery requests. And that's a big deal that you can think of that as like a real cost cutting measure. It's actually producing actionable documents for litigation. Um, this tool can also provide an outcome prediction. 
And so Walmart, which has this like parade of employment disputes and slip and falls, like, you know, they're a big repeat player in this area. They have the data that they need to, to power a pretty decent tool. And so if you think about it, it reduces their costs. It also gives them uh, a reasonably accurate prediction of how the case is going to come out. And as we all know, in litigation, like prediction, that's power. That's power at the, at the bargaining table and at, the, and, and at settlement. That's a great example. How, how is the introduction of these forms of AI affected civil litigation generally? Yeah, so uh, there are a bunch of different ways. I mean, the, the main one, of course, is that it's surely lowering litigation costs. So take TAR, for instance. Um, it's pretty clear that implemented well, and I think that's a really important caveat, but implemented well, TAR uh, is actually better than or at least as good as human manual eyes on review of documents at that discovery stage. Um, but it's vastly cheaper. And that's that's huge. That's absolutely huge in discovery. Um, you know, folks who know a little something about civil procedure know that rulemakers, judges, academics like me have been pretty obsessed, maybe overly so, with discovery costs within the litigation system. And that's both absolute discovery costs, but also relative costs. So costs across the V, the, the sort of the cost asymmetry concern um, that animates a lot of, of case law and, and rulemaking. And so for instance, we've made proportionality the idea that uh, you know that we should judge both the, the likely value of discovery against the cost of actually generating it, um, you know, we've made proportionality much more central in litigation. We've moved it to the center of of, of Rule Twenty Six, for instance. You know, Tar's great promise is that it could reduce total litigation costs, and that it could also narrow the asymmetries across the V. Because if you reduce overall costs, you might also um, reduce that asymmetry. And so, in a procedural system where we've just been obsessed with costs, that's really, really big. Like proportionality analysis could fall away. You know, in a world of narrowed cost asymmetries between plaintiffs and defendants, even something like Twombly's plausibility pleading rule, you know, in, in theory should go away because the, the, the Supreme Court seemed most focused on this concern about asymmetric costs, the fact that plaintiffs can impose costs on defendants. You know, other possibilities like, you know, maybe outcome prediction tools exacerbate form shopping. That's something I've written about. You know, if you know what your chances are, some degree of confidence in jurisdiction X as against jurisdiction Y, like maybe that maybe that fuels a, a new era of form shopping. That's maybe something courts should think about. It's something I've written about. My co-author and I, Jonah Gelbach, he's a law professor at Berkeley. You know, we, we've talked about that a little bit. There are probably some indigeneity concerns in there, you know, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the prediction that the litigants are making is affecting their behavior. And so there's kind of a feedback problem there. And so, you know, we, we've actually been a little skeptical about how important this can be. Um, but it does raise this really interesting possibility. So when litigants go in front of a judge and say, you know, hey, we want to transfer venue, right? A 1404 venue transfer. We want to transfer venue for convenience reasons. You can imagine a judge saying, great, but give me any digital outputs you have, you know, putting you know, confidence intervals around different outcomes here. Because I want to make sure that what you that, that this is really for convenience. It's not just because you have a 20% better chance of, of winning over there. So, you know, that's that's interesting. All right. But here's the most important potential impact, I think, which is that um, this clearly AI clearly has the power to both level and slant the litigation playing field. And we, and we don't know which it's going to be, but it could have this really important distributive impact within the system. On the one hand, it could level it because it makes the cost of providing legal services cheaper. It might also make it easier for smaller shops. So, you know, law firms with a few lawyers or even a solo practitioner makes it better, makes them, um, 
I guess, able to do battle with big corporate law firms better, right? That's a, that's a possibility. It could also be then that lowering the cost of delivering legal services brings legal, legal services within the reach of more people, and in particular, average Americans. Like one of the big mega trends in civil litigation in the last several decades has been the, the shrinking of what's called people law. This is the part of the legal services, this is the sector of the legal services industry that serves people and small businesses, as opposed to big law, which mostly serves big corporate clients. And so if you get a, a, a overall reduction in the cost of delivering legal services, like maybe people law revives, that would have huge access to justice uh, implications. On the other hand, AI could slant the litigation playing field further. Um, it might just be that those big law firms, those big corporate practitioners are just better positioned to make use of the technology. They can build the technical capacity to do it faster than, than anybody else. Um, there's another and really important aspect to it, and I guess I'll leave off with this, which is that the haves of the litigation world pretty clearly have privileged access to data that's going to give them a leg up. Um, court data in general is an absolute disaster. So many people have noted that, that court data sits behind walls of cash and kludge, which is to say paywalls. You often have to pay to get court data and kludge, which is they have incredibly kludgy user interfaces. And so it's actually very difficult for most people to access court data. Even beyond that, some of the most potent forms of data, some of the most important data, if we want to power legal tech tools, is case outcome data. And that's not available anywhere because most cases as civil litigators will know are settled and they're settled pursuant to what amount to secret settlements. And so only the big repeat players, only the Walmarts of the world have access to the, to the true holy grail of legal tech, which is the case outcome data you need to create these very potent um, outcome prediction tools. So, you know, all this is fueling an open court data movement that says we need to make court data more available or more widely available, that the, the future health of the civil justice system depends on it. Certainly the, the future health and trajectory of the legal tech industry uh, will, will, will hinge on it. And yet without, without kind of cracking that nut of secret settlements of, of um, you know, the fact that only certain privileged repeat players within the system have that kind of data, it's, it's, it's unclear how much progress we can really make there. So speculate a little bit. What does the future hold? All right. So some people say that robo judges and robo, robo lawyers are, are coming. Uh, lots of lots of law professors in particular have started to think about that in a, in a highfalutin jurisprudential way. That's super interesting stuff. I love to read it. You know, your fellow, Scott, your fellow San Francisco-based law professor colleague, Josh Davis, has a whole book coming out on it. It's going to be a magnificent book. I recommend it to everyone. Um, but those issues are also just way above my pay grade as a, as a lowly as a lowly litigator. Um, so let me let me just point to two aspects of the future, maybe the, over that near to medium term, not some longer term, that I think are going to require some thinking, and it might be of interest to to viewers and and listeners here. The first is is ODR. The first is online dispute resolution platforms. They have seen a substantial uptick in the pandemic, and we've finally, I think, reached critical mass in their adoption by state and local jurisdictions. And that's going to be an important feature of the civil justice landscape going forward. Um, importantly, ODR is fast getting more advanced. So uh, ODR used to be a, a basically just an online gathering place where the disputants could come together and try to bargain their way to settlement. It was asynchronous, so it was super convenient. 
Um, you know, eBay and e-commerce e world actually pioneered online dispute resolution, um, but they're getting more advanced. And so is ODR as, um, you know, as connected to courts is, is getting more advanced, or at least it's, it's, it's coming. And OD, you could call it ODR 2.0, 1.0 is just the, the gathering place. ODR 2.0 is a version of ODR where you, where you build a little algorithmic tool on top of the system. And that could be a, a simple blind bidding system to help the parties see where there's overlap in, you know, in, their, in their settlement views. Um, but you could also imagine a full-blown version of ODR 2.0 where you actually arm the disputants with a case outcome prediction. And that would be huge and hugely controversial. It would be huge because, as I just noted, outcome prediction is kind of the essence of what lawyers do. And if there's a huge number of people who can't get legal counsel, but we can provide a pretty decent estimate as to what the case outcome is going to be, that would be empowering, you would think, for the self-represented litigants who get pushed onto ODR um, um, platforms. It's also really controversial for the same reasons, and it's going to create all kinds of really difficult judicial governance challenges because, you know, someone's got to design these systems, someone has to oversee them, someone has to make the really hard decisions about, okay, what prediction are we going to arm the disputants with? Um, and so, you know, I've written in some, some places now that, that I think we're entering this new era of judicial governance. You know, courts are going to have to figure out how they collect and make available data. And they're also going to be put into a very awkward for them role as like data system designers and algorithmic system designers. That's going to put them in an entirely new posture. And I, I think that's something we'll see in the future. Last point on ODR, which is there, there are plenty of folks, including my colleague here at Stanford, Norm Spalding, who worry that ODR platforms are going to become ever more efficient assembly lines for the debt collection industry or for landlords to get, you know, the wage garnishments that they want or the evictions that they want. And, you know, here, I think it's important to note that our state and local courts have already been turned into glorified welfare bureaucracies in a, in a lot of ways. You know, a shocking proportion of what they do centers on debt collection evictions and, and family law like child support cases. And so you can imagine ODR pretty quickly turning into total engines of, of, of inequality rather than something that actually expands access. All right, quickly, here's the second really concrete thing that I think we could see over that near to medium term, maybe, and, and it's, it's sometimes called reg reform for short. And it starts with this, which is that in a, in a just absolutely stunning three quarters of cases, uh, civil cases filed in state and local courts in the U.S. right now, um, in three in, in three quarters of civil cases, one at least one side lacks a lawyer. Like this is like the most crystallized version of the access to justice problem uh, in the U.S. And so we're starting to get some really interesting thinking about how we might try to deal with that problem. And 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 frankly, it's it's not just a problem; it's it's an embarrassment for a for a civilized society. Um, a couple states, Utah and Arizona, have responded to this by doing what some other countries are doing. So like what the UK or Australia and Canada are doing, which is to say relaxing lawyer regulation, the way we regulate lawyers. So think unauthorized practice of law, think limits on fee splitting, think limits on non-lawyer ownership of law firms, relaxing all those things to welcome new types of providers into the system. Some of that would be human non-lawyer providers. So like imagine like a nurse practitioner model for evictions or for collections, um, but part of it, uh, part of that might mean welcoming non-human non-lawyers into the system, which is to say software. And so the reg reform debate is 
at least in part, maybe in large part, about to what extent do we want to allow software providers into the system. Currently, the legal Zooms of the world can't do as much as they'd like to because of UPL, because of unauthorized practice of law concerns. They can't practice law without a license. And if you're a piece of software, you don't have a license. Um, and so just the huge frontier question then is, you know, how much of this should we allow in? What kinds of regulatory constraints should we put on it instead? And boy, that's like, that's like going to be the frontier going forward. Well, you may not have been aware of this, but I'm actually an AI robo host using Scott's voice and avatar. Scott's actually on a beach somewhere. He may or may not be back for the next episode. Excellent. Well, that's okay, Scott. I'm, I'm not David Nings from either. I'm, I'm his robo-prof. David, thanks so much for being with us today and explaining how AI is affecting civil litigation. All right, Scott. Thank, thanks for having me. It is always just really such a pleasure to talk to someone who knows as much about all things civil litigation as you do. So thanks for having me. This was, this was really a pleasure. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed to the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.uchastings.edu slash CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson. <laughs>